word at all. What Paul is going to do is he's going to make some application to our lives about wisdom. Now, if you remember, at the very beginning in 1 Corinthians, specifically in verses 10 through 17, Paul identified the major problem that existed within the church at Corinth, and that was division. The division was largely due to this unhealthy loyalty that individuals had towards different leaders that had been a part of the church. Paul mentions himself, Apollos, who is now the current pastor, Peter, who apparently had traveled through Corinth at some point and had ministered there. So from 1 Corinthians 1.18 all the way through the end of chapter 3, Paul exposed how the church had allowed human wisdom to supersede God's wisdom, which further deepened the divide that was there because of this loyalty towards human leaders. So chapter 4 is devoted to making application of God's wisdom to the evaluation of workers that God has chosen and gifted as a part of the Corinthian ministry, and by extension, all Christian ministry throughout all time. So human wisdom will use a very different standard for evaluating Christian leaders and pastors than what God uses. The standards of evaluation that human wisdom generally will look at are things related to church size, the number and kind of degrees, the number of works that have been published. It might be based on personality. It might be their popularity. It might be their charismatic persona. There are a wide variety of human elements that factor into our appreciation, devotion, and love for those that God has called to minister in our lives. So God's standard is clearly identified for us in this chapter, specifically in verse 2, and it has nothing to do with what human wisdom would, would apply or would decide as what would make a Christian leader valuable or honorable in any way. So let's look together. 1 Corinthians 4, we're just going to look at five verses today, 1 through 5, and here's what the Word of God says to us today. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Very interesting set of verses that we're going to look at, which is the prelude to all that Paul is going to discuss here in chapter 4. So the title of the message is Servants of Christ, and that is Roman numeral 1 for us in our study today, Servants of Christ. And we're going to look at this in three sections. The first one is His identity. When you want to look at a servant of Christ, the first thing that Paul lays out for us is the identity. Verse 1 spells this out for us. Let a man regard Guard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul begins 
with a discussion, excuse me, Paul begins this, this, this discussion with a general invitation. Let a man or let all of man think of us this way. That is the invitation that Paul is giving to the church at Corinth. That is the invitation that the Word of God is giving to each of us today as we evaluate or as we think about Christian leaders in our life, we are to think of them in this way. The term man here is a nonspecific general term, but probably refers to those within the church who need to be challenged and how they view their leaders. They are guilty of applying human wisdom and human philosophy to the leadership that they've been exposed to and And if you remember, at the beginning part of this, Paul says, some of you claim to be of Paul, some of you claim to be of Apollos, and some of you even claim to be of Cephas or Peter. So the us here refers specifically to Paul, Apollos, and Peter. So let a man, let all man think of us in this manner. So specifically, it refers to Paul, Apollos, and Peter, but it can be generally applied to local leaders in Corinth as well as other pastors and leaders in the church today and in the generations to come. It can also be generally applied to all Christians, as we're going to see in just a moment. So as I mentioned in chapter 1, Some claimed an affinity for Paul, some for Apollos, and some for Peter, which probably means that some within the church at Corinth did not like Paul. They preferred Apollos. They may not have liked Apollos, but they preferred Paul. They might have liked Peter and didn't like either Paul or Apollos. And so their loyalty to to these men was creating tremendous division within the church because most likely they were applying a set of human philosophy or human wisdom and how they evaluated the leadership and what it was about these individual leaders that caused them to favor one over the other and potentially dislike one as compared to the other. So Paul issues this invitation. Think of us, letter A, as servants. The word here in the Greek literally means under rower. It is the word huperitas. Now, servant, most of the time in Paul's writing, is the word diakonos, and that's the word that we get for deacon, right? A deacon is a servant within the church who seeks to meet the needs of the congregation as God enables and as the individuals need. Here, Paul uses a word that he only uses in all of his writings just in this reference. And that word that means under rower is a reference to those who rode on the lowest tier of a ship. It was a position reserved for the lowest of the low of the galley slave. If you were an under rower, you were not even on the totem pole. You were beneath the totem pole. It was a position that nobody would ever want to have as their own. And this is what Paul says. Think of us as under rowers. Think of us like galley slaves who don't even rank 
amongst slaves in general. Now, this term later came to mean subordinate, which we all identify with, which simply means one who is under authority of another. So here is the Apostle Paul inviting a man and all men to think of him and Apollos and Peter and all Christian leaders and all Christians in general as under rowers, the lowest of the low. As a menial servant, the apostle or the pastor or the leader has a proper view of himself under God's rule as well as a proper view of himself and view of the service that he is to perform. Now, if you think about this, you and I probably really can't relate to an under rower. But if you were an under rower, there was no misgiving about what your function was. You had one job. You grabbed that oar and you pulled and you pulled and you pulled and you kept pulling. There was no misgiving about somebody else doing this for you. You were going to do that until you could do that no longer. In fact, when this country was started and all of these boats were coming over from Europe to North America, it was reported that many, many, many people died because they just couldn't pull any longer. They were just tools that were used and to be used up. And when they were used up, they died. This is the kind of perspective that Paul has about himself, the great apostle. So human philosophy and human wisdom seeks to elevate pastors and leaders to an unbiblical position using unbiblical standards. And it is not uncommon for leaders to seek this elevated status from others. There are many, sadly, who are in positions of leadership within the Christian world who don't see themselves as servants. They see themselves as one to be served. In fact, one of the running jokes within Southern Baptist life, of which I spent the majority of my adult life, is the pastor as king model. If the pastor said it, it must be so. If the pastor wants to do it, then we ought to do it. There was no questioning. There was no discussion. There was no understanding. It was the pastor's word, and you just had to follow along. That is absolutely the opposite of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. We are under rowers. We are like galley slaves under the rule of God with a specific purpose and serving God and others with the way that God has enabled and equipped us to. So the Christian leader who doesn't understand the servant nature of their position will risk abusing the position for their own good as opposed to serving for the good of those they serve. Have you ever known anybody and you kind of got that impression You don't consider yourself to be a servant. You consider yourself to be better than others. You're not here to serve us in your leadership role. You're here to be served and catered to by as many people as you can. I've unfortunately served with some individuals who had that kind of mentality. 
And it's a very discouraging and it's a very distracting part of God's work within the kingdom. When you have individuals who want to elevate leaders to an unbiblical position and you have Christian leaders who thrive on that, you're going to get a church that isn't really about the right thing. And they're not going to be about the right thing for the right reasons if they are about the right thing. Jesus warned his followers of this tendency to be elevated in leadership, to seek the adulation of those that you serve. Jesus dealt with this when James's mother, James and John's mother, came to him and said, would it be possible for you to place my two sons, one on your right and one on your left, when you build your kingdom in the future? When the other disciples heard that, They were indignant, is the word in my Bible translation. And here was the response of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Did I miss it? There we go. So, verse 25 here. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus dealt with this principle to his disciples. He dealt with this principle to all Christians through extension of what it is that he said here. And so a pastor leader... A Christian must have a proper view of self and the service God has called them to. And when we look at the Apostle Paul and we marvel at his commitment and we see the work of his ministry filling the pages of our New Testament, Paul says, I am just a menial servant, an under rower, the lowest of the low. So we are to think of of these Christian leaders as a servant and also letter B as a steward. Now, letter A, which I don't think I flipped under, there's a blank and it's servants of Christ. That's what these servants are. They are servants of Christ. So the second aspect of this identity in letter B is a steward. That word literally means a house manager. It is one who is given responsibility over another's possessions and property. Now, the greatest example that I can think of off the top of my head was all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis when Joseph rose to be the steward over all the house of Pharaoh. Do you remember that story? Where there was going to be a great famine in the land and Joseph interpreted the dream and Pharaoh elevated him to this position. And because of the wisdom that God had given to Joseph, Joseph was put in charge over all of Pharaoh's possessions, over all of his property, and the nation of Egypt had never seen such prosperity. He, Joseph, had responsibility over everything, and yet he was still accountable to Pharaoh. That's what it means to be a steward. Paul, Apollos, Peter are stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Now, that word mystery, as we looked at earlier in this chapter, refers to that which was previously unknown. Paul introduced this to us in chapter 2, verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom from, excuse me, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So what Paul means by that is that which was not previously known has been made known by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the apostles. The mystery of God's wisdom that Paul refers to is the wisdom of God displayed through Christ on the cross. The Old Testament did not understand the Messiah to come and to die on a cross. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit birthed this revelation through the ministry of the apostles. And this is what Paul and the other apostles were revealing to the church that they established, to the believers that they won to the Lord, is what the cross was all about who Jesus was, how he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. This was all revealed to them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a very important distinction here that we cannot lose sight of. The apostles had a unique position because God revealed to them the mysteries that were previously unknown. They were managers over the content of this revelation and were called to record and to teach this revelation. That was a one-time task that the apostles had. So the importance of that distinction is this. Today, pastors and leaders and teachers are managers over the faithful proclamation of these mysteries, but they are not managers over new or continuing revelation, and there is a very distinct difference. As a pastor, I cannot tell you, God spoke to me and said... Anytime you hear a leader or a teacher or a pastor or an author say that, a red flag has to go up in your mind and say, now, wait a minute, what do they mean by that? Well, the revelation of God is full and complete and it's over with. I cannot say God spoke to me and said, but what I can say to you is what God has already said in Scripture and then do my best to explain what that means. So the apostles had a very unique role and being a conduit for the mystery of God's revelation. You and I today have that revelation and we have to proclaim it to others and be faithful to what it is God has already said in His Word. So servants of Christ are entrusted by God as managers over His revelation and are called to teach it as best they can under His authority and are held to His standard. Now, anytime a pastor teaches based upon what the hearers want to hear or what the hearers will limit them to, 
then the full counsel of God's Word is not going to be taught. When a pastor or a teacher or a leader loses sight of this principle that we are managers over His revelation and we are to teach it under God's authority and we are held to His standard, when we lose sight of that, the tendency may be to teach what others want to hear and not all that God has said. They may seek to gain an audience that isn't interested in hearing about sin or sacrifice or what holy living actually means. They desire to hear about a little G-God that is interested in blessing them and giving to them all the good things that they want and they think they need. What does it say about God when pastors or teachers teach what others want to hear as opposed to what God has said? And what does it say about God's word when a pastor or a teacher approaches his word in that way? Well, many Christians today are malnourished because they don't get taught the full counsel of God's word. They only hear the bits and the pieces that they like and that they want to hear. You can go to your TV today, and there will be any number of pastors and alleged teachers who will be teaching you the quote-unquote Word of God, but I doubt you're going to hear the full counsel of God's Word. You're going to hear what they think you want to hear, because they want to gain you as a part of their audience, and they hope to convince you to support their ministry by sending a check, because if you do that, God's just going to bless you. He's going to open up his checkbook and he's going to pour out his blessings upon you and you will be rich if you will simply trust them and give. Well, we need to hear the full counsel of God's word. And this is exactly what Paul said as recorded in the book of Acts when he was talking to the church in Ephesus, separate from the book that we have to Ephesus. And here's what Paul writes in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. He says in verse 19, you know, and he goes on to talk about what they know. And he says here, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of what? Of repentance toward God and what? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. The gospel message that brings the lost sinner into a saving relationship with God the Father through the work of the Son, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul will go on to say to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture. And if you've got that verse open, you need to circle it or underline it or put an asterisk next to it or highlight it in one of your colored highlighters. All Scripture is inspired by God and all Scripture is profitable for teaching. It is profitable for reproof. It is profitable for correction. It is profitable for training in righteousness. But the malnourished Christian doesn't long for teaching or or reproving or correction or training, but we desperately need it and it desperately needs to be taught. I wonder how many people will listen to a TV message today and they'll hear something that they don't really like and they'll just click 
I don't want to hear that. Click. I don't like what he's saying. Click. And it's not because it's give me all your money. It's because it's talking about repentance and faith and sin and sacrifice and commitment and holy living and forsaking. Well, I don't want to do that. That sounds hard. I don't want to give anything up. I just want to add two. And so we'll click and we'll click and we'll flip through the pages. That doesn't speak to me. That's not what I need to hear. We need the full counsel of God's Word. It needs to be free to transform us from our old, sinful, wicked ways so that we can become conformed to the image of the One who has saved us. That's the purpose in God's Word. We need to be taught, corrected, reproved, and trained because we are very, very far away from the standard of what God's Word holds out for us. So pastors and leaders and teachers and authors, they do not believe that the whole counsel of God's Word is necessary and would prefer to teach the bits and pieces that will gain me a bigger audience. These individuals are not exercising their service to God and are not good stewards of the revelation of God and are guilty of a of an egregious disservice to the church, to the individuals they've been called to look after. So the identity of a servant of Christ is one that is the lowest of the low and a steward of the mysteries of God. The second part in our outline here today is his requirement. This is amazingly simple. The requirement of a servant of Christ. We see it in verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one can be found trustworthy. That word trustworthy simply means that a servant of Christ is to be filled with faithfulness. That is the standard. The standard isn't eloquency. The standard isn't brilliance. It isn't creativity. It isn't a winsome personality. It isn't a charismatic approach. It isn't a humorous delivery. It is simply faithful. An unfaithful servant or an untrustworthy steward will bring ruin to the household he serves. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you owned one of these massive horse farms that are around us and you had a large number of employees and you had barns filled with stables and you had people coming to care for the horses all the time, veterinarians, and you had the trainers and you had the riders and you had the people that manicured the grounds. You had all of these people and you said, this is too much. I need somebody to run this for me. I know what I'll do. I'll go to the yellow pages and I'll just close my eyes and I'll say, Jim Bob's Farm Service. That's who I'm going to hire. I'm going to turn everything over to you. Do what you want. I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm just going to close my eyes and hope for the best. Is that what you would do? No way. No way. Why? Because that property, those possessions are meaningful to you. They are a part of your life. They are prized and treasured. And this is the way Christian leaders and teachers and pastors ought to view their position. It is one of incredible responsibility. It is one that should drive incredible commitment 
to faithfulness. One who manages the revelation of God with faithfulness is of utmost importance. And faithfulness is what God's judgment will be based upon. I can absolutely guarantee you that there are churches out there that are the envy of pastors and leaders and authors and teachers and even some Christians who say, I wish I lived closer so that I could go to that church. I am so, I am so impressed by all that they do and all that they have. Oh, it's just the greatest church in all the world. Your evaluation doesn't matter. It is only God's evaluation. And I would bet my paycheck that there are many, many of those churches that will not pass God's judgment of faithfulness. I'm not condemning all churches, all mega churches. I'm not condemning all pastors. I'm just telling you very simply this, and what we're going to continue to see here, is what you and I evaluate isn't always what it seems to be. Our standard isn't necessarily the same standard as God's. As we're going to see in just a moment, we see the outside, but God sees the inside. God knows what we can't know. God sees what we can't see. And God is going to judge based upon faithfulness. Jesus instructed all Christians of this same principle in Matthew chapter 24. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? By the way, we are all slaves. We are all servants. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household, the steward, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Blessed is the slave, the servant who is faithful. God has gifted every single Christian with a spiritual gift to be used in service to Him. And you and I are expected to be faithful with the gift that God has given to us. You may not be a pastor. You may not be a teacher. You may never be an author. You may never consider yourself to believe to be a leader. But that doesn't matter. God has given everyone a spiritual gift with which to serve His kingdom. And we will all be evaluated by the faithful execution and usage of that gift. I could pat you on the back every single week as long as I know you, but that doesn't mean that you pass the test that God has. You could pat, pat me on the back every single message that I preach, but that doesn't matter that I pass. That doesn't mean that I pass God's standard of faithfulness. We can't get hung up on what others think and say. We can't get bogged down by the approval or the criticism of others. We have to be fixated on being as faithful as we know to be because we are accountable to God and God alone. That doesn't mean that a pastor can just go rogue and do whatever he does, wants to do because there's no accountability within the congregation. Doesn't mean that that's not what I'm advocating at all. What I'm telling you is what I believe God's Word says is that you might evaluate the ministry of someone else and be so thoroughly pleased with it, but God may not 
Because God sees what's on the inside and God measures based upon faithfulness, not upon what we can see. So here's the deal. God supplies His Word. God supplies His Spirit. God supplies His power. God supplies the gift. The pastor, the leader, the Christian supplies faithfulness. That's it. You see, to me it's very encouraging that we don't have to be brilliant or creative or eloquent or hip to be to have a meaningful ministry and service to the kingdom. All we have to have is faithfulness. And God will bless it. God will use it in a way that we may never see or experience. But others are not the standard. God is. And He's the one that judges based upon faithfulness. Now, number three in our outline is His evaluation. It is the evaluation of the servant. So there are three evaluations that are mentioned here in verses 3, 4, and 5. The first one, letter A, is evaluation by others. Verse 3. This this is really interesting what Paul says here. He says, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Now, when you, when you read that on the surface, I would imagine you'd scratch your head and say, what does he mean by that? Now, I can tell you that most people who are examined by someone else will get absolutely stressed out. Your boss, your supervisor says, hey, it's time for your annual Evaluation. Oh man, I hate this time of year. I dread this. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what I might have forgotten to do. I don't know how they're going to beat me over the head with some imperfect standard that I can't measure up to. I don't want to be evaluated. I don't like evaluation. So the word evaluation here, or excuse me, the word examine here means to investigate, to question, or to evaluate. Paul says... It's not a big deal if you evaluate me or if a human court evaluates me. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself. (laughs) Let's begin by understanding what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not portraying an elevated sense of self. He isn't bragging. He isn't claiming to be perfect in any way. Neither is he displaying indifference to what others might think. Paul is not saying that he is beyond accountability or that obvious outward sin is to be ignored or should not be addressed because, after all, he is an apostle. That's not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Timothy 5, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. You know what this is? This is church discipline for the pastor, leader, teacher when they have unrepentant sin in their life. Paul's not saying, I'm beyond accountability. You can evaluate very obvious outward sin in my life and just eat it because I'm not going to deal with that. That's not what Paul is saying at all. What he is saying is this. No human being is qualified to determine the legitimacy, the quality, or the faithfulness of his work 
for the Lord. Why? Because we can't see inside. We can only evaluate the external. Let me ask you this question. Have you in all your years as a Christian ever had a pastor say, I believe this is what we need to do in our church. I believe that God is leading our church to initiate this ministry. And you think to yourself, well, how could God ever lead a pastor to do such a thing? I don't understand why we'd even consider that. I wholeheartedly disagree. I don't know why you would want to do that. There must be more to this than you are telling me. Have you ever thought that? Be honest. I bet you have. Because we see imperfectly. We see incompletely. We can't possibly evaluate the legitimacy, the quality, or the faithfulness of another pastor's work and service to the Lord. That doesn't mean that we don't evaluate obvious outward sin and have to deal with that. So in the absence of this obvious outward sin, we cannot make an absolutely accurate judgment as to the faithfulness of the pastor, leader, teacher's heart, or of his mind, or of any servant of God. We can't do that. And here's the great news. It's not our job. It's not my job to evaluate you. It's not your job to evaluate me. It's God's job. When we are not fixated on our evaluation, our standards, our expectations of one another, we're focused on the Lord. We're not busy trying to dismiss what someone else feels God is leading them to do. We're busy figuring out how we can join God in the work that He is calling us to do. When Paul says he doesn't even examine himself, he means that his own evaluation of himself isn't perfect. Nonetheless, he mentions this as a part of letter B in verse 4. It is the evaluation by self. You have the evaluation of others. You have the evaluation by self. He says in verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. You know, it can be very difficult, and it can be quite inaccurate for us to evaluate ourselves. Why? Is it possible that we have motives that aren't as pure as we think they are? Oh, yeah. Is it possible that God is using us in ways that we cannot see? Oh, yeah. Can we work and toil and serve and it seems like it's all in vain for the entirety of our life and there's no tangible measurement of success and yet God would say, you have been utterly faithful. Is that possible? Oh yeah. Look at the ministry of Jeremiah. Look at the ministry of Isaiah. Look at the ministry of Jesus. Did every person Jesus encountered follow Him? No. The masses rejected Him. But by human standard, Jesus was a failure. So you and I are not 
a capable evaluator of self because we can have a tendency to build ourselves up into something that we're not. And we can also have a tendency to be hypercritical and see nothing of value in our lives. Note what Paul is saying here. Paul says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. What he means is that he's not aware of any serious sin or any significant deficiency in himself, but he quickly acknowledges, but I could be wrong. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, but that by itself does not mean I am not guilty. You see what Paul's saying here? Just because you can look at your life and say, boy, I don't see anything that's an obvious fault or problem or failure, something that has to be corrected, doesn't mean that's absolutely true. This is why we need to let the Word of God teach us and correct us and train us and reprove us. Because God knows and God will speak to us through the Spirit to help us understand the revelation that the servants of God are to be good stewards over So Paul says that even though I am not aware of any significant deficiency in myself, he says, I know I'm not perfect. I'm not aware of any serious sin in my life. And even that is not a reliable evaluation of myself because it is is probably that there are many sinful things in my life that I am not aware of. So let me say it like this. I could look at my life and say, well, you know, um, I, I, I don't commit adultery and I don't lie and cheat on my taxes and I don't physically or emotionally abuse my family and I don't hurt other people and I don't blast others when they disagree with me or they question something. You know, I don't, I don't have any serious defect that I'm aware of, but that doesn't mean I'm perfect, Right. We are all thoroughly sinful and we are all thoroughly selfish and we are all incapable of accurately evaluating ourself. And this is what Paul says. He says, you know, it's not a big deal for me for other people to evaluate me because it's only God's evaluation that matters. And I can't can't even evaluate myself accurately, but I know that God will. There's only one evaluation that truly matters and is completely accurate. And this is what Paul says in the latter part of verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. And so this last evaluation, letter C, is evaluation by God. Verse 5, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Do not pass judgment in your evaluation of the Christian leader's In your world, it's not your job to do that. You can't do that accurately. You're not going to do it accurately. The evaluation is for God and God alone. So do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So Paul is saying this, God sees it all, God knows it all, and one day, when we stand accountable before him, God is going to reveal it all. We will stand before God and give an account of our service and of our faithful stewardship 
of what God has entrusted to us. This is the same judgment that Paul referenced earlier in our study in chapter 3, verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Therefore, don't pass judgment. Let God be the one who judges, since our judgment is unreliable. Now, the phraseology here is very important. The things hidden in the darkness... And the motive of men's hearts refers to the inner attitudes of man that only God can see. We can't see that. We might be suspicious about it. We might even question it. But we can't be absolutely certain of those inner attitudes and of the inner condition of man's heart. But God sees that. And that is what will be revealed to us in the day of our judgment. Paul goes on to say here, and each man's praise will come to him after God's evaluation. This is really interesting and very important for us to understand. Since there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, this judgment is not the revealing of our sin, but it is the revealing of those things which are unknown to us. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to work. I don't know if it's going to be broadcast on a big screen for everybody to see. I don't know if it's going to be a private revelation between us and the Lord. But I can guarantee you this. When those hidden motives and attitudes are revealed to us, we are going to go, Oh. Isn't that right? But since there is no condemnation, no condemnation at this time, each man's praise will come to him after God's evaluation. Every Christian will have some praise and some reward after God's evaluation. But these rewards and this praise will not be the result of any human standard or of any human means of evaluation. It will be simply based upon God's evaluation of our faithfulness as servants of Christ to what it is He has entrusted to us as a steward. How many of you like tests? Usually not. And so all of our life is preparation for the day we will meet him and see him as he is. So what are we doing? What are we building? Are we faithful stewards, managers of what God has entrusted to us? I can't value that. Evaluate that in you. I can't even evaluate that in myself. Only God can. But what you and I can do is be more faithful today than we were yesterday. Whatever it is that we know about God, whatever it is that we know about obedience to His command, whatever it is we know about His expectation, whatever it is that we know pleases Him, that is the measure of our faithfulness. Would you pray with me?